One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, y'all. Ryan Sprague here. As you all know, the Summer in the Skies podcast is always free to consume, but it isn't free to create. That's why I've started the Somewhere in the Skies Patreon campaign. On a monthly basis, you give what you think the show is worth. You'll be helping the show continue, grow, and to be something truly communal. And remember, there are rewards for each level of contribution, and the list is only growing. So please, help Somewhere in the Skies now by becoming a patron. To contribute and to learn more, visit www.patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. And today, we're going back to a year in history when a string of UFO events across the world made us truly think, what are these highly anomalous vehicles in our skies? And who or what is in control of them? This is 1967, the year of the UFO. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Spread. There are certain years in UFO history that conjure very specific images. 1947 makes us think of Kenneth Arnold in the beginning of the flying saucer craze. That same year, presumably one of these saucers crashed in the vast desert outside Roswell, New Mexico. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. 1952 makes us remember the Washington, D.C. flap, where UFOs were sighted over the Washington National Airport, and even over the nation's capital. In Washington, ghost-like objects dart across the radar screen at the CAA Traffic Control Center at National Airport for several hours, traveling more than 100 miles an hour. Air Force jet fighters spend several hours chasing the objects plotted on the radar scope. General Sanford, Air Force Intelligence Director, confirms that the objects are not secret American weapons and reiterates the Air Force's obligation to investigate. 1980 ushers in the famous Rendlesham Forest Incident where UFOs were reported in and around joint military bases in England. But one year really caught my attention recently while I was reading through old case reports, and I was astounded by the sheer amount of varying phenomena at play. The year was 1967, and it proved to be one of the strangest and most active years in UFO history. Let's take a look back at some of the most pivotal cases brought to our attention by UFO researchers across the world. David Morris, 19, a factory worker in Kent, Ohio, 
was driving home to Monroe Falls from work early in the morning of March 28th. At about 2.30 a.m., while driving west along Little River Road, he topped a small hill and suddenly saw an orange glowing object ahead of him. It was in a field to his left on the south side of the road and was apparently hovering several feet above the ground. He described it later as cone-shaped, about 25 feet tall and 12 feet wide, with a smaller sphere on top. As Morris slowed his car down for a better look, he saw four or five small figures scurrying quickly back and forth across the road, about 50 feet ahead of him. They appeared between three and a half feet and four feet tall, and they gave off the same soft orange glow similar to the object. Morris quickly slammed on the brakes, but, unable to stop in time, struck one of the beings as it crossed the road. He heard a thump at the moment of impact and saw the being's raised hand as it was struck. The car traveled about another ten feet before it stopped. Morris turned and looked around, his hand on the door. He saw a group of little figures standing as if clustered about something lying on the road, and suddenly, frightened, he sped off. He did not report the incident to the police because he was convinced that whatever he struck had not been human. The next day, Morris found dents in his right front bumper that had not been there before. He mentioned the story to several of his co-workers, one of whom was acquainted with a reporter for a local newspaper. The reporter alerted Nightcap, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. The incident was carefully investigated by Charles E. Toner and Roy Wiley of the Pittsburgh Nightcap Subcommittee on several subsequent occasions. The case remains an unknown. Guy Tossi and Will Begay were driving south on Highway 26, just outside Ryrie on November 2, 1967, in Idaho. It was about 9.30 p.m. There was a sudden, blinding flash of light in front of their car, followed by the abrupt appearance of a small, dome-shaped UFO. The dome was transparent, and in it were two small, strange-looking occupants. The car was brought to a stop, Begay driving, did not have to apply the brakes, however, and the object hovered about five feet above the highway immediately ahead of them. It was about eight feet wide and flashed green and orange lights around the rim. The area was bathed in a vivid green light. The dome opened as if hinged and one creature emerged, apparently floating to the ground. It was about three and a half feet tall, and on its back was a kind of pack that protruded above and behind its head. Its face was oval and heavily pitted and creased. Two small, round eyes and a straight slit-like mouth completed the facial features. Large ears stood high on the hairless head. Approaching the driver's side of the car, the alleged being opened the door and slid behind the wheel. Horrified, the two witnesses pushed over to the right. The car began to move, whether driven by the being or towed by the UFO was uncertain. It was taken well out into a field of stubble wheat, and the UFO kept a fixed position a few feet in front of it. As the car stopped, Tossie, sitting next to the door, suddenly opened it and bolted, running for the nearby farmhouse of Willard Hammond 
about a quarter mile away. He later reported being followed by a bright light, presumably carried by the second occupant. Meanwhile, in the car, Begay cowered in the front seat in a state of near shock while the first creature jabbered unintelligibly at him, making sounds that were high and rapid like a bird, he would say. The second being, who had apparently given up chasing Tossie, returned to the car. The first being then got out, and the two beings rose up and in to the UFO, which ascended in a zigzag path. Meanwhile, at the home of William Hammond, Tossie could scarcely make himself understood by the astounded farmer and his family. After having calmed him down, they accompanied him back to the field, where they found the car. Begay was sitting nearly speechless with fright, his eyes tightly closed. The engine was running, and the lights were still on. About fifteen minutes had elapsed from the moment the young men had seen this flash. Hammond listened to their story, and then followed the frightened boys home in his car. Perplexed, he later stopped at a local bar and grill to see if he could learn anything about this all. While there, a county deputy sheriff stopped in, and Hammond told him the story. Later, both witnesses also came by and voluntarily told the deputy sheriff, in their own words, what had happened. State police were summoned, and an investigation began. It was discovered that a number of local farmers had reported that their cattle had bolted during the evening for unknown reasons. Others claimed to have seen lights in the area. The report was investigated for NICAP by C.R. Ricks of Idaho Falls. During his investigation, he learned of a man who claimed that on the same night, he had a similar encounter. Ricks eventually tracked this man down and confirmed the report, although the witness was emphatic about not revealing his name, and he was reluctant about discussing the details of his encounter. With very little else to go on in terms of investigation, Nightcap decided that this case was also to remain unknown. In central Montana, Thursday morning, March 16, 1967, the E-Flight Missile Combat Crew was below ground in the Echo Flight Launch Control Center. During the early morning hours, more than one report came in from security patrols and maintenance crews that they had seen UFOs. The UFO was reported directly above one of the E-Flight launch facilities, or silos. It turned out that at least one security policeman was so frightened by this encounter that he never again returned to security duty. A short time later, the deputy crew commander, a first lieutenant, was briefing the crew commander, a captain, on the flight status when the alarm horn sounded. Over the next half minute, all ten of their missiles reported a, quote, no-go condition. One by one across the board, each missile had become inoperable. From there on, all hell broke loose. The following is direct testimony by Robert Salas, who was on duty that day as Deputy Missile Combat Crew Commander. Good afternoon, my name is Robert Salas. In uh, 1967, I was a first lieutenant uh, stationed at Malstrom Air Force Base, Montana. I was a missile launch officer. My commander at the time was uh, Lieutenant Fred Mywald. 
Sometime in the evening hours on March 24th, I, I received a call from one of my t uh, top side guards, the flight security controller, stating that they had been observing strange lights in the sky, making odd maneuvers, um, and wanted to report it. Uh, I thought it was kind of a strange report, but uh, I took it seriously. You have to understand we were protecting nuclear weapons, and uh, we, uh, the reports we generally got were very professional. Uh, at any rate, uh, I kind of dismissed the call. He called back uh, about five minutes later. This time he was screaming into the phone saying uh, they're uh, looking uh, at an object, uh, a red glowing object hovering just above our front gate. Uh, this object was about 30 feet in diameter. Uh, he couldn't make out too much of the details of the object, only that it was uh, pulsating and... Uh, he had all the guards out there. He was very frightened, uh, wanted me to give him direction. I think I said something like, make sure nothing comes inside the perimeter fence. He immediately hung the phone up. We, um, I went to wake my commander, Fred Mywald, who was taking a, a rest break, started to tell him about the phone call. And uh, just as I told him, uh, our missiles began going into what's called a no-go condition or unlaunchable. Essentially, they were disabled while this object was still uh, hovering over our site, our launch control facility. Uh, at that point, we went through our procedures. He reported to back to the command post the incident. We also had some security lights, uh, meaning uh, security incursions at some of the launch facilities. Uh, so I called the guard back upstairs and um, directed that a security team be sent out. At this point, the guard told me the object had left at high speed. Again, silent, no noise. The security guards got out to the launch facility and reported back that they were seeing this object again. Um, they also lost radio contact. The, um, this incident terminated at that point. We, uh, we reset the, the security alarms, but the, uh, the missiles themselves were still disabled. Uh, we had to call in for maintenance, uh, maintenance teams to come out and, uh, and bring them back up on alert. The, uh, the main indication we got from our equipment was this was a guidance and control system failure. I want to I emphasize that the um, security people upstairs had no control authority over, they had no equipment up there, no ability to affect any kind of um, uh, system shutdown on our missiles. All, all the control systems were underground. We were relieved the next morning and reported back to the command post, uh, I'm sorry, the, the base, Malmstrom, reported to our squadron commander. He was white as a sheet, didn't know how to explain the event. He, he, uh, I asked him specifically if it could have been an Air Force exercise. And he assured me that it was not an Air Force exercise. There was also a member of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations in, uh, in the room. He uh, ordered us to not ever talk about this. I even signed a non-disclosure statement to that effect. For many years, the Air Force has maintained that no reported UFO incident has ever affected national security. It's established fact that a large number of Air Force personnel reported sighting UFOs. At the time, many of our strategic missiles became unlaunchable. So you tell me, that's not a national security threat?
There is clearly a great discrepancy between the United States Air Force's public position relative to UFOs and national security and the established facts of this case. October 24th, 1967. This happened between Oakhampton and Halsworthy in Devon, in the southwest of England. Two on-duty uniformed police officers, Clifford Wacott and Roger Willey, had spotted a pulsating flying cross while driving through Devon. It was seen at low altitude moving above the treetops of the surrounding countryside. Intrigued, they began to chase the flying cross. However, they were never able to significantly gain on it. At times, the object slowed to about 50 miles per hour, and at one point came to a complete stop in midair. The pursuit involved speeds of up to 90 miles per hour and covered a distance of about 14 miles. Whenever they did gain a little ground on the object, it would simply accelerate away from them. Eventually, they reduced their speed, fearing an accident themselves. The closest distance that they reached the UFO was about 400 yards. At one point, they stopped at a farm to wake up the owner so they could gain some corroboration that they were not mistaken in their sighting. At a later press conference, Waycott said, quote, The light wasn't piercing, but it was very bright. It was star-spangled, just like looking through wet glass. And although we reached 90 miles per hour, it accelerated away from us, end quote. Before the object disappeared from view, they saw a second UFO that was also cross-shaped, very bright and made no noise. Both officers were impressed by the relevant speeds of these objects as they quickly departed, especially the first one. Counter Willie just uh, said, here we go then, and uh, we drove off after it, if you know what I mean. What kind of speed were you traveling at? We were traveling very fast. 16 um, No, No sound that I heard at all. It was, um, there was no outside uh, noise apart from the noise of the car itself. And the acceleration, the acceleration away from us was terrific. So really, we didn't get under it to hear any sound. But you were really close enough to be absolutely certain that your eyes weren't fooling you. Oh yes, uh, it was just in front of us. <laughs> there was no question whatsoever that um, this was a pigment in the imagination. It was, it was definitely there. It was definitely either manned uh, by some sort of being or remotely controlled. It was definitely being controlled to view our car. Inquiries at nearby RAF Shivener proved negative. Within 48 hours, numerous other witnesses began to report sightings of similar objects. A, quote, fiery cross was witnessed above the skies of Glassop, Derbyshire, by six police officers. Whatever these flying crosses were remains a mystery up until today. And this case, once again, remains an unknown. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On the night of October 4th, 1967, shortly after 11 p.m., a UFO some 60 feet in diameter was seen to hover above the water near the tiny fishing village of Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. The UFO, which displayed four bright lights that flashed in sequence, tilted to a 45-degree angle and descended rapidly towards the water's surface. Upon impact, there was a bright flash and an explosive roar. Concerned witnesses began calling the nearby Barrington Passage RCMP detachment. None of those witnesses mentioned anything about a UFO. Most believed that a large aircraft had ditched into the harbor, and that there may be survivors. Eventually, three RCMP officers arrived at the shore near the impact site. Corporal V. Werbicki and Constable Ron O'Brien, dispatched from the Barrington Passage Detachment, were approaching from east of the site. Constable Ron Pond, who was on highway patrol on Highway No. 3, was heading towards Shag Harbor from a position west of the impact site, and his position allowed him to view the UFO while it was still in flight. When all three officers met at the impact site, they found that the UFO was still floating on the water, about a half mile from shore. It was glowing a pale yellow, and was leaving a trail of dense yellow foam as it drifted in the ebb tide. Neither the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax, nor the nearby NORAD radar facility at Bacaro, Nova Scotia, had any knowledge of missing aircraft, either civilian or military. Pond reported that the object had, quote, changed during its descent to the water's surface, as in it changed shape and that it appeared to be no known object. Later, other local witnesses described much to the same details of those of Pond. Also, a Coast Guard lifeboat from nearby Clark's Harbor and several local fishing boats were summoned to investigate. But the UFO had submerged before they reached the site. 
the sulfurous-smelling yellow foam continued to well to the surface from the point where the UFO went down, and about a 300-foot slick developed. Search efforts continued until about 3 a.m., and then resumed at first light the next day. Everybody involved was convinced that something, that is, something real and unidentified, had gone into the water. The next morning, a preliminary report was sent to Canadian Forces Headquarters in Ottawa. After communicating with NORAD, Maritime Command was asked to conduct an underwater search as soon as possible for the object. Seven Navy divers from the HMCS Granby searched throughout the daylight hours until sundown of October 8th. On Monday, October 9th, Maritime Command cancelled the search effort, claiming no results. Outside of the local area, media attention quickly faded. The Shank Harbor crash retrieval became case number 34 in the infamous Condon Committee report, which would serve as Project Blue Book's swan song. The case was brought to Dr. Condit's limited attention by the late Jim Lorenzen of the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. Dr. Levine, the investigator assigned to the case, allocated the grand total of two long-distance phone calls to this investigation. One call was to the watch officer at Maritime Command, and the other was to an RCMP spokesperson. Dr. Levine was assured that there was nothing to this case and that further investigation was futile. Thus, interest in the Shag Harbor case withered away. Yeah, tell that to the locals in Nova Scotia, who are still investigating this case up until today. Uh, me and a bunch of friends were in Barrington, and we were taking some of them home to Woods Harbor, and as we was coming up through Shag Harbor, roughly where the post office is, we see a bunch of lights in the sky, and that was in over the land here, not in over the water. And as we just thought it was an airplane, and as we were driving along, which was probably roughly two or three miles, we could see the light the whole time. And as we was coming up over the hill there, just before we got to the top of the hill, the light went from flat to a 45 degree angle. And we lost sight of it. As we made the top of the hill, we could see the light up off of there in the water, probably 100 to 150 yards from shore. And you got to remember back then, there was no street lights, and none of these buildings or houses was here. And even back there on the hill where we walked up, there's a lot of trees now, that was all barren land. But the light was up here roughly in the water, a couple hundred yards offshore, and it drifted the whole way down by here, roughly two to 300 yards offshore. It was a yellowish half globe, probably 16, 18 inches in diameter. The last case we're going to cover in 1967 is a very important UFO close encounter of the second kind that comes to us from Canada. This amazing account details the experience of Stephen Mikulak of Winnipeg. Mikulak earned his living as a mechanic, but was an amateur geologist and... While enjoying a few days off, he decided to do some prospecting. He tried his luck in the Whiteshell Provincial Park. This area was by no means new to Mikulak. He'd spent considerable time in this vicinity of the lake near the park. Mikulak had followed reports of quartz veins being found in the area around Falcon Lake. 
There were also reports of silver being found in the area, and Mikulak was on the trail of this valuable metal on May 19, 1967. He traveled by bus from his hometown of Winnipeg to a motel on the Trans-Canada Highway the night before. Mikulak rose early that morning, heading into the vast beauty of the wilderness. Only a couple of hours had transpired before he found a quartz vein by a small brook. After breaking for a quiet lunch, he resumed his hobby. At about 12.15pm, his attention was drawn away from his labors by the sound of geese passing overhead. Looking up to see them fly over, he was shocked to see two red, glowing, elongated objects descending from the skies. As they came even closer, their shape was defined more as disc-shaped. As he stood, mesmerized by the sight, one of the craft abruptly stopped and hovered in midair. The other continued its downward flight until it landed on a big, smooth rock only about 150 feet away from him. The hovering craft began to move away, and as it went, it changed colors from red to orange and finally gray. It disappeared into the clouds above him. The landed craft also began to change its color in the same pattern. Finally, the gray turned into what appeared to be hot stainless steel with a golden glow. Mikulak had been wearing his protective welding glasses earlier. And now, they protected his eyes from the brilliant purple lights shining through openings in the front of this craft. He could now smell something, like sulfur, and hear a type of hissing sound. Curiosity overcame him. He knew he was looking at something he thought he would never see. A craft from another world. The only emotion more powerful than his curiosity was the gripping fear that held him in his tracks. He did, however, have the presence of mind to sketch the object, never moving a step. After approximately 30 minutes, he was frightened to see a door open from the side of this object. He could now see inside the craft. The interior was brilliantly lighted. Pulling all the courage together that he could, he moved closer to the craft. As he reached a point of about 60 feet from the mysterious flying object, he could hear two voices conversing above other sounds coming from inside the object. Being a multilinguist, Mikulak tried several languages to communicate with whoever or whatever was inside. First, he called out in English. No response. Then, Russian, German, Italian, French, Ukrainian, then English again. All of his efforts failed to draw a response from inside. Can we also note here, that is a ridiculous amount of languages to know. This dude's awesome. Undaunted, Mikulak moved even closer. He reached the door and stuck his head inside. He saw a large panel of different colored lights and other light beams crossing in different directions. He later described the flashing lights as resembling lights on a computer. He saw no one in the craft and decided not to push his luck any further. He moved back away from the door, and suddenly, three panels moved together, hiding the door completely. His attention was now on the exterior of the craft. He later described the surface as highly polished colored glass with no 
breaks or seams in the surface. Mikulak reached his hand to touch the polished surface, and his glove was melted. Suddenly, the object moved, and as it did, a vented opening was exposed like a type of exhaust port. He estimated its size at about nine inches high by six inches wide. Heat was vented through the opening, setting Mikulak's shirt and undershirt on fire. He was now in great pain. He quickly tore off his top garments and turned to see the craft descending back into the skies. He felt a rush of air as it made its final departure. But he could still smell the craft after it disappeared. Knowing that he needed medical attention, he quickly tried to mark the spot, using rocks, pine cones, loose dirt, anything he could find to make a landmark. A severe headache now was complicated by a sick stomach. He broke into a cold sweat and began to vomit. On his way back to the motel, he had to stop several times to ease the stomach pain. After being refused help by a passing police officer, Yes, I'll say that again. Refused help by a police officer. He finally reached the motel. It was now 4 p.m. He entered the coffee shop and asked someone to recommend a doctor. The nearest doctor was in Kenora, 45 miles east of Falcon Lake. Because of the distance, he decided to return home instead of making the trip to Kenora. The next bus would not arrive for about four hours, so he rested in his room and phoned his wife. He told her only that he was in an accident, but that he was okay. He instructed her to have their son meet him at the bus terminal in Winnipeg. He arrived there at about 10.45 p.m. His son, Stan, took him to the hospital immediately. Mikulak was treated for his headache, nausea, and a grid-like burn pattern that appeared on his chest. Theorists came out of the woodwork suggesting that his burns were from a barbecue pit. Mikulak made not a dime from this story. He paid all of his own medical expenses, including a trip to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, for additional treatment. To defray these costs, he wrote a privately funded booklet on his experience. But again, no money was actually made. Ultimately, Mikulak was seen by more than a dozen doctors in the U.S. and Canada. The site of the experience was investigated by the RCMP, RCAF, other government officials, and civilian groups. America's Condon Committee also joined the investigation. Nothing conclusive was ever offered to debunk the fantastic account by Mikulak. His story is unique in many ways and is accepted as genuine by many UFO groups and investigators. Many years later, Stan Mikulak, his son, would return to the site where his father had this incredible experience. In a brief interview with UFO investigator Chris Rutkowski, this is what Stan Mikulak had to say. Oh, I think what happened was exactly how Dad described it as, as it happened. And being here and looking around and seeing the lay of the land, every explanation, and I heard him explain it over and over and over Every explanation when he talked about distances and trees and rocks and water and beaver dam and it's all clear. It's all here. It's exactly how he described it. Uh, when you look at the drawing he made 
for the RCMP to come out here on their own, the little sort of map, it, it follows the contours perfectly and, and directions perfectly. So he was here. I know that. It's clear that some of the most popular UFO sightings occurred in the year 1967. The real question is, was this all just pure coincidence? If not, were there different intelligences behind each incident, or even different phenomena at play? Or was it just a slew of strange occurrences that we'll never truly know the answers to? No matter the case, 1967 will remain one of the most enigmatic, mysterious, and downright strangest years in UFO history as we continue to experience these incredible sightings and encounters somewhere in the skies. Thank you as always to the E1 Podcast Network, KGRA Radio, and to you for listening. My special thanks goes out to Billy Booth, NICAP, and all the amazing contributors to the research done in this episode. We'll have links in the show notes for all of their work and proper accreditation. Please take a moment to rate and review Somewhere in the Skies on Apple Podcasts, your Android apps, or wherever you get the show. It helps find new listeners and gain visibility. We're on Twitter at Somewhere Skies and Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod. All past episodes, articles, and contact info can be found at the official website, somewhereintheskies.com. I'll see you here next week. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.